If you're not ready to change gear neurologically, this podcast is not for you. These particularly challenging times can actually be seen as a life-giving opportunity for expansion, disguised as an impossible situation. As we grow into our own wholeness through this global great awakening, we are more aware than ever that we are all one. Join with us to raise the collective consciousness, whole and one. You've got this. Here is your host, Sheila Ihirain. Well, hello and welcome everyone to Whole in One with Sheila. You're tuned to Voice America's Empowerment Channel. And the aim of this show is to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will help you to manage your self-talk, build a healthy relationship with anxiety, rewrite your narrative, tell yourself that different story. It's just like doing a bicep curl for your brain. Join us weekly to hear the stories of love, wisdom and truth that have completely changed the lives of our specially selected guests. Nothing has any meaning except the meaning that you give it. Stay tuned to learn how to access your wholeness. It only takes one day to change your whole life. Whole in one, you've got this. On today's show, we'll be meeting an architect of renown from the bustling city of Belfast on the island of Ireland. William Gregory Bell started his career on the Emerald Isle, where he was project architect on the multi-award-winning and iconic Belfast Waterfront Concert Hall, Arts and Conference Centre. He completed an extensive portfolio of development projects in Ireland's capital city of Dublin and spent a decade of formative years with award-winning design office CZWG in London before going global. But that fast-paced first chapter of his life cost Greg dearly, professionally and privately. A story he's going to share with us today. Greg, you're so very welcome. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us. So tell us about the morning of your life, Greg. You were born in Belfast. Yes, yes. Um, seems a long time ago now, 1957. Um, so I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, as you, could, as you would say these days. Yeah. Um, I classify myself, I suppose, as a little bit of a, uh, you could say, an analog nomad, as opposed to a digital nomad. Um, these days, everything's digital. I'm still partly I've got one foot in the digital age and one foot still in the in the old analog age. So, oh, meet your sister. <laughs> I'm with you on that one for sure. You know. <laughs> so, so yes, I grew up in. I was born in Belfast, and um, my mother is a farmer's daughter um, from Coleraine in in County Derry, and. Uh, my father uh, is from Larne on the coast, and uh, he grew up, his father was a, a factory worker, and he became a civil servant, initially in customs and excise, and later into VAT. So um, we were really only myself and my sister growing up, and uh, uh, my parents, from my mother's background as a farmer's daughter, she really instilled a... Uh, uh, very much a sort of honest work ethic in as you know a hard graft and you get out of life what you put in essentially mm -hmm. um 
So we, we pretty much, uh, we moved to Liverpool when I was quite young, before my sister was born. And uh, that was the first move that my father made to, uh, to boost his career in the civil service. Mm-hmm. But that was the first of five moves inside uh, seven years, essentially. So my early childhood was uh, many different schools, many different education systems, mm-hmm. uh, all around uh, between Liverpool and uh, various cities in Northern Ireland. Um, Did you find that unsettling, Greg? Yes, it was difficult as a kid. Um, it was difficult because in UK and Liverpool, they had a particular system when I started primary school. And then later on, uh, moving school so many times, everyone had a slightly different methodology and slightly different uh, way of teaching. Until the last primary school um, in Temple Patrick in County Antrim, small village school, uh, which was essentially a church hall with three teachers and, you know, uh, seven classes. So it was a sort of uh, very much a traditional way of teaching. And uh, that sort of left its mark on me. Um, at that point, my education was a little bit rough at the edges. I, I wasn't good at learning, writing or reading. And uh, I still find it difficult really to get through a book at this point. But um, which sort of pushed me more towards the creative side, uh, sure. arts and, uh, and creating uh, things, uh, designing things. So um, I, I, I then went to grammar school or secondary school in Belfast um, in the 70s, of course, when all the, the, the troubles were, were kicking off in Northern Ireland. Um, so I, I went through the school system in Belfast um, as I said, focused more probably on art and drawing and te- technical drawing, engineering drawing, which I found I was very, very suited to. And it gave me a great outlet for my creativity. So uh, I excelled in those subjects, but to get to architecture school where I really wanted to go, I had to pass maths and geography and the harder subjects. So sure. uh, eventually I managed to get into uh, Leicester Polytechnic, which is now called De Montfort University, to study architecture. Um, uh, the years in Belfast left their mark as they did on anybody who lived through that period. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you were involved, uh, connected to the troubles or not, um, um, we lived outside Belfast at that point. But my school was in Belfast, so. I travelled in and out every day. Um, so I, in many ways, I, I, I lost myself in creative arts and, and uh, I played a lot of football at the time um, as a sort of an expression of uh, apart from what was going on. So um, then really to achieve anything in Northern Ireland at that time, um, you had to... You had really three choices, the police, the army, or the prison service. They were the career options open to you. And um, our head boy, for instance, in my year joined the police. So that was the aspirations of my cohorts, if you like, at that time. Um, 
and Northern Ireland became very insular during that period. So really to get on and to improve oneself, it took a big step to leave Belfast and to leave mm-hmm. Northern Ireland. Um, so I, that's why I ended up at, at Leicester in the UK, uh, studying architecture for uh, what was essentially three years for a degree and, and two more years for postgraduate to, to qualify as an architect. Sure. So you needed to change your environment, Greg, to to make everything else possible. So you had that wisdom at that early age, in spite of the fact that you were probably set amongst people who were in fixed mindset, as you said, everybody going into the more obvious careers. Yes. Somewhere, although you didn't really understand it completely at the time, you were leaning into growth mindset, even at that early stage. You wanted well, I, more. That's right. And I, 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 if there was going to be an opportunity, if I was going to become an architect, or that that, that was what I had to do. Um, at the time, I had another option to get sponsored by, by Wimpy, which was a large contractor at the time. And that was put in train, and I could have taken that route. But I wanted to get uh, the real creative exposure rather than working as, a, 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 as a, an apprentice in a, in a contractor's, in a builder's uh, environment. So I saw architecture school as more, a more creative option and sure. uh, was going to be more fulfilling for me in the, on the creative side of things. Amazing. So, and you must have realized your own potential even at that early stage, did you? Did you know that the world was your oyster? Had you a sense of that? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I couldn't see past. I mean, because I had struggled at school, and as I said, art and engineering and drawing were my, uh, my mainstays. So I didn't know because I thought mathematics is such a large part and science and understanding technology and things like that is such a hard, a massive part of architecture courses. So I just thought I've got to try it. I've got to go. I've got to really give it a, a, my best. And uh, of course, all students when they first go, whether it's just up the road to the local university, you're homesick. So the biggest problem was being there on your own. Sure not having any other family there and having to try and uh, just become accustomed to what was essentially a, a foreign country. Sure. And the first hurdle is accent. Oh, yes, and of course. I had a, a quite a broad Belfast accent at that time. You, don't, you wouldn't say so now. But so I had to change my accent so that people could understand me. I know that. My tutors and my lecturers couldn't understand me. So it became quite a fast uh, thing that developed quite quickly for me. And it's interesting, my daughter who went, uh, she had a Dublin accent having grown up in Dublin and she went to university in Southampton in England and she went through the same process and she's developed from a Dublin accent to a sort of a very Southern English <laughs> accent. Isn't now. it amazing how we adapt to suit our environment? And her, her brother and sister, who are still in Dublin, uh, rag her about it all the time, of course. So anyway, that was, and, and it was a struggle just to settle in Leicester, uh, away from home, um, in that first year. Um, and I really had to struggle to get through the exams and the tests and the projects that they set us. Well, and well so, done you for settling you know, into that. Did you reach for help within the university system? No, there, they didn't exist in those days. 
and this was in the late, late 70s. Um, um, you just got on with it. And there were a lot in the first year, there's something like 23% fail because mm-hmm. they, in a five-year course, they want to root out sure. the people who are going to have trouble at the very beginning. So uh, fortunately, I got through the first year and and then got into my into my pace. I found that because I had the the engineering drawing aptitude and the art visualization side, I could excel in projects, whereas other students had a very strong maths background and could do all the calculations and the and the scientific side, and but had real trouble on the drafting, the drawing, and the sort of visualizing side. So I would help them with some aspects, and they would help me. So it was a, it was a we developed a, a very uh, well combined effort. Sure, you've built a really adaptive culture. So I found, yeah, I found that the creative side really gave me a strong uh, presence in the year, uh, uh, in our year, and so I was able to really, really build my uh, creative, architectural creative, drawing, drafting uh, abilities, and really pushing myself. Now, nowadays architecture students it's all on computer and it's all CAD and it's all sure. 3D virtual reality and, and and modeling and things like this so it's entirely different in those days it was the skills of drawing with a pencil sure. or a pen uh, that were to the fore so that really suited me at the time. So and I'm taking to, the vision from your right brain and being able to interpret it literally on it, it. with pen and paper. That's it. So the winning aspect, I'm just looking because there have been a number of um, studies in neuroscience done, I think mostly with rats, but, um, but they're, they're very interesting and, uh, and very significant around um, the winner mentality, encouraging a winner mentality. So when you were affirmed for your work and your productivity and your creativity, did you find that it gave you a greater sense of yourself, that it built your self-efficacy and that yes. you had a greater capacity then for winning again? Yes, it gave it for me. It gave me freedom. Sure, from the absolutely from the struggles that you had envisaged, you might yes. trip. That's yeah, that might have tripped you up. Very interesting. And then, unfortunately, for some people, when they don't succeed, that sense of "I'm a loser" becomes part of the architecture of themselves, and it's very difficult to get out of that mindset. Then, so. yes, yes, it's 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 that is a very Irish thing. Um, in America, it's entirely different. They encourage people to try and fail and keep get up and try again and keep going uh, 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 until they're successful. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very Irish mindset that uh, they almost uh, feel inadequate before they even start. Oh, sure. Uh, um, well, our history has, our, I suppose our history has predisposed us to feeling a little bit less than, but we're coming out of that now. And we, we are, as a nation, oh, I, I feel our strength. We're, there's a breath of fresh air over the island of Ireland at the moment. There really is, in spite of everything that's going on, because mindset is changing. And it was, it took a Herculean lift. It was a, a tough, a, a struggle. There was a leverage required, but we're a good people. We're a soulful nation. And we can see the other side. So we're getting there. And that's leaning into that is growth mindset in its essence. Yes, yes, yes. And I think as a nation, we're getting yes, there. Yes. I would say that from my years in Dublin with my own business, I would say definitely Ireland is, is uh, or has actually developed an astounding uh, sense now of, of, 
of self-being and self-worth and, and really achieving things. I mean, it's the fastest growing economy in Europe again now. Absolutely. That's right. I saw your post the other day. You're amazing. Yeah. You keep us uh, up to speed with all of the comparative studies of Ireland and everywhere else in the world. So I uh, encourage everybody who doesn't know you yet, um, please follow William Gregory Bell on LinkedIn and other platforms that we'll chat about later because he's an amazing man for giving us a portal into the luxury and the opulence of the rest of the world that we may not have got to visit ourselves yet. Um, and, and keeping us up to speed with the news of the world where Ireland fits in the jigsaw of all of that. It's really interesting. And, and you yes. make it very succinct and very accessible. So I do encourage everybody to get over there and follow you and follow that story, that news feed. So William, I, or Greg, and I need to explain to our listeners why I'm jumping between William and Greg. So when you and I made friends first, you were William. And then... Yes. I, and then I got on to the endearment level of Greg. So <laughs> I, I jumped by accident into the former William there. So Greg, when you were building this amazing career in the morning of your life, um, you had your eye off the ball in another way, in another part of your life. Can you tell us about that? Um, uh, well, it, I don't really know what you mean, sorry. Oh, so we were chatting before about um, while you were busy and you were building and then the Celtic Tiger was swinging its tail and, you know, you were jumping on board. Oh, that was, that was much later, actually. Oh, was that later? I mean, so I've skipped. Yes, I mean, so when I, when I finished university, I took a year off in Australia, like okay. most, uh, a lot of Irish people do. And that gave me a real outlook on different parts of the world and... Um, I, and I took on interesting jobs uh, while I was there. I had a work visa and I, I worked as a, uh, a debt collector. Oh. Uh, they thought that because I was from Belfast, I could handle myself and I would be a good debt collector. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the, the passport. <laughs> but but not, uh, not like debt collectors from, uh, from people paying rent, debt collectors from people who borrowed money and hadn't paid it back. And so it was a little bit dodgy. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. And, interesting. And, and then I babysitted for a prostitute for a while, which gave me uh, great kids and it suited me very well. And it gave me my money to get my passage home. Well, that good. is the most colourful part-time work I have <laughs> ever, ever heard about. Wow. And well done you for admitting that. I think well, I, worked that's... A, I worked in a kitchen during the day as a bottle washer, a dishwasher. Oh, and Greg, then, you're and too funny. In the evening, I babysat for, for a prostitute for, uh, Oh, you're too funny. I'm not going to ask any of the Chandler Bing <laughs> questions about how you got paid. I'm absolutely not no, doing no, that no, one. No, no, it was all above board. And, it, and as I said, I yeah, saved whatever. enough to get my passage home. So that was good. Oh, and, uh, so so then when I came when I came back from the, that year in Australia, I worked, went straight to London where the sort of boom period was of the 80s was just starting in London. There was no work anywhere else. And so everybody, all my colleagues had gravitated to London. And so I was lucky to work, get a job with CZWG, which was a young, uh, growing practice uh, run by four partners. Each, each of the letters is a different uh, partner. And they had never worked for anybody else. They'd studied at the Architectural Association in London, which is a private architecture school, world renowned. So they were really pushing the boundaries and trying new ideas. And most of the projects that we had and the designs that we did were out of this world. They were unbelievable. And as a result, most of them never got built. And 
<laughs> and so we attracted clients who wanted something slightly different, like Janet Street Porter, who was uh, in the BBC at the time in charge of children's TV. Yes. And uh, clients like that. So uh, we were called the Young Lions at the time, and a lot of our projects got into the architectural press and wow. the, the wider media. And Piers Goff, who was the G in the, in the CZWG, still is and in, heavily involved in TV programs, documentaries, the Royal Academy shows, yes. things like this. So he's uh, he's quite a, uh, an achieved architectural critic and a, a star architect, if if you want to uh, use a term. Um, so at the time, there was a book uh, that was published called English Extremists. And it was on the first 10 years of the officer's work, which was highly publicized. There was an exhibition at the Heinz Gallery in London, and it was completely uh, wacky uh, exhibition. Like you walked through an old London cab to get into the exhibition. Oh, wow. Things like that. So, wow. so, um, so creative. So it was very creative. There was drawings on show in behind fish tanks with with uh, fish swimming around, things like this. It was quite, and this was in the in the late uh, 80s. So I cut my teeth in that environment, very creative environment. Um, a lot of very talented people that I was lucky to work with. So, um, and then uh, Belfast came, uh, came knocking. And I was asked to set up a team in Belfast to um, to design the waterfront concert hall, wow, wow. Uh, which at thirty three years old was a big uh, challenge. Amazing, yeah. Um, so that was six years working on one project from the first scribble on the page to the doors opening, and it's one of the 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 building has become part of the peace process at the time, so it's highly politically charged. Belfast City Council were the, the client, and I got to take uh, well-known uh, personalities around the concert hall as it was being built. Because there well, was name so drop, much, name drop. So there was so much vested interest. So I took President Clinton. You did, and and Kenneth Branagh and Liam Neeson, yeah, people like that. So and as and since I was there, uh, Bertie Hearn was there, Tony Blair was there. And of course, um, Obama was there for the G8 summit True. Yeah. in uh, 2013. So it's become a, an iconic uh, building in Belfast. Uh, anyway, that, that really launched my career yeah. on, a, on more of a, an international scale because it won a lot of global awards at the time. Um, Phenomenal achievement. And it's such a, so wise for one so young to have all of that vision and to be able to take on with it. Yes, yes. But, but very consuming though, Greg. Oh, it was totally, I mean, it, it was architects always talk about getting their one big building and which changed your life, sure. you know, good or bad. And it was all consuming, literally. Yeah. I'd be working seven days a week 12, 14 hours a day. Um, at that period, um, my son was uh, at nursery and my other two daughters then were born during that period. Um, but uh, I, I, 
my ex-wife would have had to take a lot of responsibilities as a result. I mean, I was being pulled to do, you know, before the PR team were involved in the concert hall, I was pulled to do monthly radio shows and interviews and the PR work and, and keep the contractor moving on site. And we were really pushing the boundaries <laughs> of design in Belfast at the time. So there was a, quite a lot of opposition as well. Sure. It was a politically charged project. So I learned a lot being thrust into the, the limelight. Now, I was working for a, a, an architectural practice at the time called Robinson and McElwain, who had won a design competition uh, many, many years prior. Um, and because of the politically charged environment, the various factions in Belfast City Council had not voted together at the one time to, uh, to uh, sanction the project. So yeah. somebody abstained and it, and it started and it got going. So that's why I got the phone call yeah. um, when I was in London. So um, that, was, that project was very instrumental in really taking my career up a notch. Absolutely. Amazing. Immortalized forever in, that, in everything and very particularly in that one, for sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, it, it's coming up to time now to take a little uh, break, Greg, but I'm going to encourage everybody to stay close to the radio, stay close to their laptop, close to the phone on whatever medium they're listening to us, because we're going to come back after a little segment of refreshment and continue chatting about that upward trajectory. And we're going to take it right through that portal where you go completely global. So you leave Ireland way in the past. We'll be back very shortly. Don't go anywhere. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Hole in One with Sheila. To reach the program today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Outside of North America, reach us at 001-480-553-5760. Or send Sheila an email from the Voice America show page. Now back to Hole and One. Hi guys, you're very welcome back. I'm here chatting with William Gregory Bell. And William is an architect of renown. And he was just chatting with us before the break about his design of Belfast Waterfront Concert Hall, Arts and Conference Centre and how that amazing project completely changed his career. It was very pivotal at so many levels. So Greg, at that point, you were very busy. You had a young family. Your amazing wife at the time was probably picking up the slack in the background and you were very busy keeping all these plates on sticks. It was a very difficult balance to strike, wasn't it? It was. It was. And um, I think when you're launching a career or you're endeavouring to make your mark in a career, it's, it becomes very overpowering and, and focused and at the expense of, of, of other things. Now, when I was in Belfast, it it didn't become apparent to me and uh, it wasn't until I left Belfast and moved to Dublin to set up my own business in partnership with, um, with Frank Ennis, um, who was an Irishman from Mayo um, who had built a reputation for hotels and pubs. Mm -hmm. And so my background in, 
in the concert hall and housing that I'd done a lot of big apartment developments in London and uh, uh, small office projects, we were quite complementary. So we were going to change uh, the way the business was in Dublin and, and changed the world. And, you know, we had great aspirations Amazing. Uh, during the Celtic Tiger years. So from uh, 1998, uh, we were pushing the envelope and we were winning a lot of work. And we got, uh, at one point, we were, we were doing something like 40 pubs uh, everywhere from New York, Chicago, Dubai, Wow. And all around Ireland, and that expanded into hotels. We had a something at the time that we called Pub in a Box, which was Irish craftsmen uh, producing bar counters and bric-a-brac and, and uh, furniture that was put into a ship's container and 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 shipped out to to Chicago or wherever, and it was authentic Irish bars. Oh, wow. So, so innovative and progressive. I mean, there was just no stopping you at that stage. Yeah. It's again, again, what we chatted about in the first half of the show. So it's that winner mentality. You were winning. You were on a winning streak. So everything was coming up, Greg, at that point. Yes. That's, yeah. But, but that, was, uh, that was going, it was very successful. And we got work in, in Iraq. We got small, uh, uh, city master plans in Iraq to do. So we, were, we, we grew the office to 26 people. We were really pushing the boundaries at, at, at that time. Um, but again, it becomes even more consuming. And when you're having to make sure you're paying salaries of 26 people in your office, it's a big responsibility. So we were victims of our own success in many ways in that we both, both our marriages collapsed. Yeah. So, um, uh, and I blame myself particularly um, for the situation that I had because I became just completely obsessed uh, with the office and we were expanding into work in, in Calgary in Canada and different places. So Frank and I, between us, were flying all over the place, traveling all around the world, you know, meeting clients night and day. You mm -hmm. know, publicans in particular work uh, late hours. Sure, yeah. As you can imagine. So most of the site meetings or meetings with clients would be in the evening. So mm -hmm. that means you're working during the day with the people in the office, then you're meeting clients in the evening. So that doesn't leave any time for for family and children and, and, and other needs. So um, that took a big toll, I think, on my family life. Um, and it's something obviously I regret now, but at the time I was just so completely occupied by what was this. what was happening and i thought it would be five years of blood sweat and tears to get the business moving but it really developed into i suppose uh, the guts of 10 years um and it's like and a hungry monster. Years, yeah, it's like a hungry monster, isn't it, though, Greg? As well, because when you have built this business, you need to keep feeding it. It's it's very difficult to take your eye off that machine, you which can't. is grinding forward. You can't. Yes, you can't. And then you've got overlapping. I mean, I was managing about twenty projects, so you have overlapping clients, overlapping projects, and some might be, you know, a new house for somebody. Another might be a city in Iraq. You know, so completely, we had a rule, we didn't turn out any work. Yeah. So, uh, and we had, we were, we had a lot of, we had 26 people working in the office. We were doing interior design work. We were doing architecture work. 
Um, and so it was very successful until uh, the music stopped in 2007 when the Irish banks collapsed. Mm, and there weren't enough seats when the music stopped for everybody to sit down. So, of What a course, good analogy, Greg. <laughs> really so, good. So that, uh, that forced us to really focus on the, the projects in the Middle East. And so we had, this, uh, we had those master plans in Iraq, which didn't actually materialize in the end. And we had uh, McGettigan's pubs in Dubai, which are very, very well known in Dubai. This, and across Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and now in Asia and, and various places around the world. So we started with the Bonington Hotel for McGettigan's family in, in uh, Dubai. They were a client of ours from Dublin. And uh, it materialized into McGettigan's bars in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and in the airport and, and now in, in Asia, as I say, all expanded globally, all on the same theme. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that kept us going for a little while. We downsized a bit and in the end, uh, we shut up shop in end of 2010. Um, uh, Frank was, is more of an entrepreneur, um, Frank Ennis, and uh, he had wind farm interests uh, in the, on the west coast of Ireland, and he had pizza franchises with Little Caesars for Ireland, and uh, he, he had a substantial share in the Porterhouse Group, okay. who is a, is a distilling and pub chain in Ireland and in New York and London. And so uh, he had more income streams than I did. So I was purely managing the business and the clients and and uh, so when that collapsed in 2010, uh, we shut up shop. Uh, the, uh, the pre- Frank now bought out the debts and the, the company's still going, but on a small scale, okay. on a handleable, more handleable scale yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, and what and we, was left in it for Greg at that stage? So nothing. 2010, nothing. Oh, Greg. We, I, we spent, uh, I used to do a lot of the legal work in the licensing side, going to court and and getting the licenses for hotels and, and bars in Ireland. Um, and I, we both got heavily involved in the legal side, suing clients at the demand of our bank. Mm-hmm. I won't say which bank. Uh, our bank were demanding we sued clients for fees that were outstanding, that the same banks had reneged on those same developers' uh, loans and, mm-hmm. and, and development uh, arrangements. So it, was, uh, it wasn't going anywhere. But we had to go through it. Of um, I spent three years dealing with lawyers and in courts and things for very little to show so for it. So destroying. And at that point, that was uh, the the time that my marriage collapsed because you know uh, we were living off little, I had a lot of debts, and everything was piling up. So uh, our, my marriage, and plus I was still working the same hours. Of course. So the, the, my marriage didn't survive, unfortunately, uh, sadly to say. But um, So then 2010, that's it. The roads stopped. What do you do? Do you keep going on thinking it's going to come back? In fact, in Ireland, it took 10 years to come oh, back. It sure did. If it's, so, do you know what? If it's even back, a lot of people are still really, they're still bruised and um, battered and haven't really got over it. It was crippling. And yes. the, the, the redundancy of that is still here. 
I, I do believe that people are doing their very best to get up and rise above it, be metacognitive and see a future that's wholesome. But it, it was crippling for yes, people who got yes. caught up in it. And then the austerity that followed from the government just made it worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I just count myself extremely lucky that I was able to, to, to do something to get out of it. I mean, I, I bought my way out of my debts and I, I sort of bought my way out of negative, negative equity on my house, for instance. So, um, and I know there's a lot of people who, who haven't been able to do that and are still suffering. Um, so I feel fortunate uh, to have been able to do that, but only because, again, I packed my bag and, and came to Saudi. Mm -hmm. So did you pack your bag and go to Saudi, a broken man, or did you begin the repair work here and go to Saudi as part of the recovery? I went on a FOSS course um, because I declared myself unemployed mm -hmm. and I went on a FOSS course which introduced me to LinkedIn and that became a big um, catalyst for me. Sure, a locomotive. I, I had time on my hands and I, I got into the uh, LinkedIn communities and global communities and mm -hmm. I was sort of talking to people and f trying to find out what I could do next and where I could go, you know, how I could resolve it and I you know I'd secured a mortgage holiday so I wasn't having to pay any mortgage for a year so uh, luckily my ex-wife worked for the bank that we had the mortgage with so that made it easier mm -hmm. so then talking to people on LinkedIn who I didn't know and following people and uh, it gave me more of an outlook and more hope um, that something could be done so so then uh I was applying for jobs in Qatar and Saudi and Dubai, where I had some contacts. And we done Frank and I had done a little one resort project in Saudi Arabia on the Red Sea. Uh, now there are hundreds of resort projects, but at that time this was like this is a, a ridiculous pipe dream that somebody had. You're always such a trailblazer. <laughs> so. So uh, uh, I'd applied for one particular job and it was, I thought, you know, if I could just go down a peg or two and just get a job on a, a managing a construction project on site and, you know, start again and build up again. And luckily I got a, a, an invitation from a company called Omrania. Now Omrania, I didn't know at the time, but of the top design office in Saudi. Hmm. So, um, so Bazam al-Shihabi, the principal, said to me, we'd like you to, to come and uh, manage this 80-story tower. Now he said, it's going to be very challenging because the contractor is Saudi Bin Laden Group, who are the strongest family in the, in the kingdom next to the king. And so he said, you've got to be very careful how you handle it. It's going to be very challenging. So I said, okay, I'm up for it. And I, I was born in Belfast. I can do this. Yes. So 2011, I arrived in Saudi, didn't know anybody, didn't know anything about the country and the customs. Uh, 
So I learned a lot very quickly. Having to deal with the heat was one of the biggest problems because I arrived in July where it was 45 degrees C. And, uh, with just an iron uh, jumper in your bag? You, know, you felt like your eyeballs were going to melt oh, in, in your head because it was so, uh, so hot. So uh, anyway, I just knuckled down and, and focused on the job in hand. In fact, it turned out, compared to what I was doing in Dublin, where I was managing 20 clients and 20 projects and everything that that involved, dealing with one client on one big project was like a holiday. So it was very straightforward. In fact, that tower is called the CMA Tower for the Capital Markets Authority in Saudi Arabia. They manage the stock market essentially in Saudi. Uh, that was a, a very high profile project on a par with the Waterfront Hall. Wow. As far as Riyadh is concerned. Go you. So every, everybody Go knows it. <laughs> everybody knows it. Everybody recognizes it's the tallest tower in Riyadh. And it's the centerpiece to the King Abdullah Financial District. So it's around it are 40 smaller towers that are banks, the financial stock market, all hotels, so on and so on. The project is still not finished. And the tower is nearly finished. Um, now, ironically, my new office, which we'll get on to, will be in that tower. <laughs> oh, isn't that amazing? Can we just take a moment to respect the journey that you've been on? I mean, that is just amazing. That's literally boom, bust, and right beyond boom again. Greg, it's fabulous. Yes. It doesn't get any better. That is just, we need to drink that in and breathe that in and realize you're real, you're human and you did this, and you did this because of your growth mindset, because of your inclination to survive. You checked in with your how you, your environment. What, where am I getting my meaning and purpose? I have a lovely family that I need to still provide for. And, um, and yourself, your self-respect and your self-efficacy. And because you took a dopamine hit from, so you were subjective about dropping in that dopamine hit on the way to achieving. You didn't just wait to achieve all the way. You were willing to take a step down that the, in your own words. Yes, yes, I mean, that's yes. amazing. That is, as far as I'm concerned, about as big as it gets, because with that in mind, you're taking a dopamine hit. You're taking a rise and a high off the journey, the leaning into getting there. And that's, that's neuroplasticity. That changes yes, your, yes. literally changes your brain. Well, but also in a completely different environment, yeah. a different country and different customs and, and, I mean, different language, you know. I mean, I still know very little Arabic um, after after 10 years, but uh, enough to get me by and direct a taxi driver or to, you know, say hello to people. And Order a pint, I'm sure. No, oh, no, 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 of course no, there's not. there's no alcohol in Saudi. <laughs> That's a double blow. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, wouldn't make your <laughs> Uh, no, the Irish embassy looks after us from time to time. So, yeah, so guests, you said. Guests of the ambassador now and again. So that helps us out. But um, uh, so it's, it was even more of an uphill uh, struggle and reinventing myself than when I went to university. So this is really, you know, an alien culture, an alien country. And to a large degree, it still is after 10 years. Um, you can maybe faintly hear the call to prayer in the background. It's very timely. <laughs> I did, actually. I was, so, wonder, I was wondering, would Houston be able to edit that out? <laughs> it has now become part of the conversation, so all is well. 
<laughs> Master so, of the reframe, Greg. <laughs> so um, uh, from that project, I, I, it's quite a small community, the architecture community in Riyadh. It's a, it's a city of seven and a half million people, so it's not a small city, but it's growing very fast. The country is growing incredibly fast. Um, and they're improving the lot for the Saudi people. Um, the, the royal family are really pushing and developing what is called a 20, Vision 2030, it's called, which is really to take the country away from the reliance on oil. Now, that is a big, bold step. Um, and there are, in the Saudi communities, there are poor Saudis. People don't mm -hmm. realize that. People think they're all wealthy and rich. They're not. There are many Saudi families where they need two incomes, and mm -hmm. like anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and they're fantastic people, unbelievably generous, uh, generous people. So um, obviously I work with Saudis every day of the week in my office and my employers are all Saudis. And so um, I have a lot of respect for them. And their outlook on life is very positive. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they have, they're developing very much a can-do attitude to things, which sure. is, and particularly uh, Saudi women, which is great to see. Oh, wow. I'm interested that you, that you make a point of that. So was that not well, the case well, before? Because uh, my wife uh, is a, my current wife, my, uh, I met, I probably need to say a bit about that actually. Oh, I'm dying, <laughs> I'm dying to share that. That one to me is that is such a lovely story. I love, I love the story of the, um, the repair that was able to happen with your lovely family and uh, the blended families and the, the love that's shared yes. right across yes. the boundaries. It's such a lovely story. And may, maybe do share with our listeners yes, how okay. in the middle of all of it, you had this love. Yeah. Family. So, so I'd been here, um, essentially as a bachelor for uh, most of, well, uh, six or seven months at the time. And I didn't really have any social life because I was working in a Saudi office with Saudis and, and Lebanese mostly. And there was only one or two Western expats in that company. Nowadays, there are a lot of Western companies here, so it's much more open. Mm -hmm. um, so I... I didn't really have much of a social life. And there was a walking group called the Hash House Harriers, which is a, a British uh, running group, actually, around the world. But they have one in Riyadh. But because it's so hot, you walk in the desert on a Friday. So they said, Friday is the weekend. So they said, come with us on the Hash House Harriers the next weekend. So I did. I went, And this was in December of 2011. And I went on the hike. And it's a long hike, and uh, uh, and I started going every week, and that was my only social outlet. And there were mostly expats would go, so a lot of nurses, a lot of teachers, uh, engineers, architects, so on. So I, I got to know a little bit wider uh, group of people, and one of these uh, treks into the desert and they're all mapped out and they're on particular routes and it's all very well organized. Um, and one of these trips, I was in a shared car uh, with, and there was a, three women in the back and one of them kept talking to me. And I, so I didn't see her, I was in the front and she was Canadian and she was uh, talking away about Ireland and her name actually was Marie Noonan. 
So she, her family's Irish originally, going yeah. back generations. And so she said, uh, we got out of the car when we arrived and we carried on talking and just walking through the desert, following everybody in a long trail through the desert, over the dunes, down the rocks and things. And uh, so our relationship sort of burgeoned from there, really. And, uh, and Marie has been instrumental in really changing my life. Uh, but also importantly, it showed me that there was a whole social scene in Riyadh that I didn't even know existed. And uh, because nurses, uh, female nurses and female teachers here get invited to everything, mm -hmm. every embassy event, every, every marine ball, every, you know, uh, and so I tagged along with them for good for <laughs> and got a life. <laughs> so, of course, now, uh, 10 years later, uh, Marie is, um, or Dr. Marie, as she's called, she's uh, heavily involved at Princess Nora uh, University teaching and managing and um, and she's involved in the Canadian Club uh, CCOR, the Canadian Embassy and the Canadian Business Network, the Canadian Embassy and I'm involved in the Irish Society, the Irish Embassy and the Irish Business Network and the British Business Group at the, at the, at the British Embassy and uh, so many other uh, groups and societies here. So we've become a sort of mainstay of the social scene. Amazing. Now, during COVID, that's all stopped, of course, um, because there's no social gathering. Um, and Saudi, fair uh, use, and they've really nipped COVID in the bud. And mm -hmm. I mean, the number of infections and, and, and deaths is very, very low. Um, I mean, I've had my, both my Pfizer vaccine jabs at this point. Mm -hmm. So they're You've highly got the stamp organized. On your passport. Yeah. Uh, no, on my, on my uh, track and trace app. Uh, yes, that, that's right. I can trace up. It says I'm immune. Immune, Mr. <laughs> immune. Well, listen, Mr. Immune, we're coming near the end of our program. So I would just love to ask you to tell us then about the latter part of that lovely story where you're now um, sashaying across from that former middle existence to a lovely new job, uh, which you're starting next week. And um, you are, go and maybe you could tell us what you think hole in one means to you. Okay, yes, yes. So right now I'm at another turning point, um, staying within Saudi. I mean, I've had a few jobs uh, in Saudi, both on the client side and on the consultant side as an architect, and uh, quite renowned, quite uh, big projects. Um, I've, been, I've just finished literally. Uh, last week, we completed uh, tender and value engineering on a project in Mecca, which is four hotel towers and two shopping malls and a bus depot, which this is a, a typical scale of something, which is, you know, approaching three billion reals uh, size project. So it's and these are five star hotels in Mecca. I mean, I can't go to Mecca because I'm not Muslim. So uh, and that was the end of our scope on the project. Mm -hmm. So um, it's an opportune time now to take up another opportunity. And um, I've been asked to uh, take on a role for the Saudi uh, Sovereign Investment Fund, which is uh, called PIF, uh, Public Investment Fund is the, is the 
full title. And uh, this is to oversee the master planning projects that PIF are funding and investing in. Now, PIF are talking about trillions of dollars they're investing around the world in projects, in, in uh, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, everything and anything. They tried to buy Newcastle United Football Club recently, but I think that, that failed. So, <laughs> so these are massive investments. So below the investment section, there is the development section in Saudi, which is founded this Vision 2030 idea, um, which, and they're focusing on primarily tourism, but hospitality, tourism, cultural projects, the arts, to develop tourism in Saudi Arabia. It didn't exist up to now. So the only visitors coming into Saudi Arabia that were allowed in were the Muslim pilgrims going to Mecca. So there were millions of those coming every year. And that was their, they call that tourism. Yes. So now they're really embarking on international tourism as, as the rest of us know it. Yes. So there are biblical sites in Saudi Arabia that very few people know about. Obviously, where Moses crossed the Red Sea, yes. uh, Sinai, uh, Mount Sinai are all in Saudi. So um, there are so many biblical sites that were never recognized before because as far as uh, uh, history is concerned, the Muslims didn't recognize anything pre-Muslim. So they've been sitting there. And we, when we go to the desert tracks that we still do, you come across 3,000 BC rock carvings. Wow. They are untouched, no signs, nothing. Wow. So um, and you can stand by them and touch them and so on. So, so there are so many, um, the, the uh, tribe, the uh, Nabataean tribe that uh, would bring frankincense from uh, Yemen, today known as Yemen, through Saudi Arabia to Jerusalem um, for the Romans, they took their camel trains across Saudi and they created what we know today as Petra in Jordan that everybody's familiar. There are the equivalent to Petra in Saudi that nobody knows about. So the tourism market is phenomenal. Absolutely. And, and it will expand incredibly with all this funding. So as part of this, there are a series of about 12 giga projects, as they're called, that are complete cities complete areas that are being developed for tourism, not necessarily building cities, but being developed uh, for tourism. The biggest uh, is the size of Belgium. Wow. Uh, I mean, Neon, which is a new future city, as they call it, uh, is about 26,000 square kilometers. Amazing. Um, Alula is 22,000 odd square kilometers. Amala is another one, which is 3,000 square, 800 square kilometers. And Kinia is a, a leisure city outside Riyadh, which uh, Six Flags are, are working on, uh, American company, and they ha they're building the fastest, highest, longest roller coaster in the world at the moment. And there's a new Formula One racetrack uh, beside, beside it. And they always uh, maintain that the roller coaster coming down at the sort of peak of its speed is going faster than the Formula One car in the next 
Oh my goodness! Well, the, the roller coaster you reference and the fast car in uh, in the speed in the speedy lane is not unlike the story you've told us about your amazing life, Greg. Yeah, of course, and yes. I am honoured. I have to say, and inspired. I'm honoured to know you and inspired by your story. You know this. We've chatted before, and um, I'd love to get you on again. There's so much more we could chat about, but I'd love to know just before we finish, what does hole in one mean to you, Greg? Yes, yes. So, from all I've been through, um, I think it's more about family, your kids, love, um, your parents, sort of all all the things that I have, have done. Oh, you have done. I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to catch your heart in my hands because I know you're feeling a little bit emotional about the sharing. I want to thank you on everybody's behalf for sharing with us to to get in touch with your vulnerability in such an authentic way, Greg, is beyond words. And you have done all of that. And not only have you done that because you guys are all friends and you're you you're so involved in the lives of your in, in the life that you had before and your lovely new life now and your community in Saudi. And now you're involved at another level, a very spiritual level with people you don't even know. And I can tell you here and now on their behalf that you've changed so many lives by sharing that story with us today. <laughs> and I, for one, made a lovely new friend when you and I started chatting. And that friendship is going to continue because I'm really taking a leaf out of your book because growth mindset is exactly where it's all at. And I want to thank you wholly, completely and totally. Thank you again for joining us for Hole in One. Please join your host, Sheila E. Hirine, for another edition of this amazing program next Wednesday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we meet again, remember no matter the question, love is the answer. You've got this. <laughs>